Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. I'm really excited to have Batya Angar Sargon. She will teach me how to pronounce her name properly. <laughs> um, she is the deputy editor, uh, opinion editor over at Newsweek, um, and she's the author of this new book, Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy, which is just, I think, a breath of fresh air in this what, what has sort of become a stalemate even between the populist left and the right um, over over um, cultural issues. But Batia, one, how do you pronounce your last name? <laughs> That's the first question. You know, um, I honestly, like, I love hearing how people pronounce it. I, I'm not precious about it at all. It's such a, it's one of these very Jewish mongrel-y names anyway. And so we're definitely not pronouncing it the way my ancestors did. And so whatever comes out, I'm happy to hear. <laughs> Well, how do you say it? I usually say Unger Sargon, but you know, oh, like Unger my Sargon. my grandfather who was Unger didn't pronounce Unger like Unger. He called it Ungar. And my grandmother who's from India, her Sar she they didn't call it Sargon. They were Sorgons. And so it's like it's so it's like this is the Americanization of it. But I usually say Unger Sargon. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's an Americanization of names is just like so um such a funny i know some people find it offensive but i have the same kind of name where it's it's gone through a lot of different iterations and i, I find them fascinating as well it's, absolutely it's a true triumph of american assimilation <laughs> how many um i have a spanish name even though i'm not hispanic but uh how many mexicans in california pronounce it inez upon for it's like a true triumph of assimilation right because you would oh, never say that in spanish um, but I'm so excited to have you on because this book, as I said, I think is such a, a breath of fresh air and you've done such a great job defending it um, and your thesis across all these different platforms. Um, but I wanted to start out with the story that you tell about a particular profession here, because this is a book about journalism, even though so many of the themes I think apply outside of that context as well. But how has journalism changed over the last, let's say, century and a half Um and, and how does that play into some of the problems uh, that we see in today's media? Yeah, so um, over the course of the 20th century, journalism underwent a huge, huge shift. So it used to actually be a working class profession. You know, you would have journalists living next door to cops and electricians and plumbers, and they just didn't make that much more than their neighbors. It was considered really a blue collar trade, one that you picked up on the job. You know, most journalists didn't have a college degree because you can't really teach journalism, right? You can't teach someone to be a good listener or to question their biases, right? You know, they picked it up on the job learning from other people who also didn't have college degrees. Fast forward to today and 92% of American journalists had a college degree as of 2015, a number that is certainly higher now five, six years later. Um, and it's not just that they have a college degree, that it's one of the most highly educated uh, industries in America. It's that um, uh, journalists, along with the other highly educated liberals of America over the last 20 years, underwent a real economic status revolution to where the economy today is really working very well for people in the top 10%, which is where most journalists end up by the middle of their careers just as it's working really poorly for the working class. And those go together because what I argue in the book, what I really show is that the, the course of journalist status revolution is also the course of their abandonment of the working class to which they once belonged. And what we're seeing today with this whole woke uh, moral panic really in the mainstream media that a lot of us, a lot of liberals like myself, lefties like myself have noticed as well. Um, that to me is really just the last stage of uh, the liberal media's abandonment of the working class. It's a sort of highly specialized academic discourse about something that America has made huge progress on of late, you know, an obsession with a problem that is just not the main problem anymore in America way of distracting from the class divide that is the real problem of America that does harm Black and Latino Americans more than it does anybody else, right? But is really a class-based problem. And it's a problem that affluent liberals are benefiting from, which is why they're talking about a different problem altogether. That's sort of in a nutshell, the argument that I make. Um, so in particular, there was something that I learned that was totally new. Um, I'm pretty into to 19th century history, history, but I didn't realize there were these two very different 
models of how to make money off of journalism, off of news. Um, and, and maybe you could tell a little bit about that story, one that catered uh, to a large circulation within the working class and talked about issues that the working class actually cared about. Um, and, and a second that did cater to elite opinion or, or an elite crowd because they had the money for ads and it might be a lot smaller. Yeah, absolutely. So American journalism was really born as a kind of populist revolution in the 19th century. A couple of, you know, working class guys showed up in New York City and realized that all of the newspapers were catering to the elite. You had, you know, economic papers catering to the business elites, and then you had political papers that were catering to the political elites. And the papers were very expensive. They cost $10 for a yearly subscription. You couldn't just buy one on the street. That was sort of the model that was set up until 1833, when a very enterprising young man called Benjamin Day showed up in New York City, and he was poor, and he lived among the poor. And what he realized was that there was a lot of poor people and they were very literate. Uh, America was the first country in the world where you could be reasonably sure that if you stopped a stranger in the street, they could read. And he was like, there are so many poor and working class people and they have nothing to read, but they can read. Maybe they would read a newspaper. And he created uh, the penny press. He charged one penny for it in the street. And he became incredibly wealthy because, of course, they wanted to read about themselves. And this was picked up by Joseph Pulitzer, you know, the great one of the greatest American journalists in history, who, you know, I think he starts at his stage, he started charging two pens, you know, it was like 40 years later. But he became, you know, one of the richest men in America. His paper was the number one red newspaper in the entire world because it was catering to the masses. It was catering to the lower classes and not in this kind of like condescending way. It was like they were his constituencies. The paper he wrote was for and about and by working class Americans. And so, of course, it took them up as a crusade, you know, on their behalf. But it was very much about their lived experiences, about their lives. He gossiped about them. He made their news everybody's news. And he, of course, brought the news from, you know, the elites down to their level so that they could understand what was going on and what was being said. And he, he made the masses unignorable by writing about them with respect and with dignity. And what happened was, was um, the New York Times actually was established as a counter-revolution to the penny press. So they realized that there was no way to compete with the numbers of the penny presses. There was just, they had a lock on, on the working class. But what they realized was, especially the Ox family that took over the New York Times, was that you don't actually have to compete for numbers. What you can do is, is you can go to a high-end advertiser and tell him that your readership is illegal and then you can charge more for an ad. And it works like that because, all right, think about it like this. Let's say you have an ad for a watch that costs $10,000, right? And you put that ad in a newspaper where 90% of the readership you know, is working class and 10% is upper class and in the market for a $10,000 watch, right? So whatever you're paying for that ad, it's only reaching 10% of that readership who is, you know, only 10% of the readership are in the market for that ad, okay? So it's worth, let's say, a certain amount. But if you have a newspaper that 90% of the readership is in the market for a $10,000 ad, suddenly that ad is worth a lot more money because only the people that you are catering to are going to see it. You're not wasting any ad dollars on eyeballs that could never even dream of buying a $10,000 watch. That's the model that the New York Times embraced. We can create an elite readership we can convey to advertisers that only the elites are going to read this newspaper and then we can charge more for ads. And the way you do that is by creating expensive content, right? By showing to readers who this newspaper is for and who this newspaper is not for. And they were so bought into this model that in 1931, when Joseph Pulitzer's children tried to give the New York Times the circulation of the world, his newspaper that was for the working classes, they tried to give that circulation to the New York Times essentially for free. And the New York Times turned it down because they realized that those million readers would devalue their paper, right? That's how extreme a commitment they had to this model. Now, over the course of the 20th century, what essentially ended up happening was through a series of different kinds of media revolutions, ending with the digital revolution, is that essentially everybody is now in the New York Times model. All liberal mainstream media outlets are catering to the same six or seven million 
highly educated, affluent, white, liberal readership. That's why, you know, you used to have this plethora of different outlets, the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Atlantic, Vox, the New Republic, CNN, and they were each catering to different audiences. Today, all of those people are going for the same audience. And because of the tricks and tools of digital media, they all can. And that's where you see this homogenization of the news, as well as this moral panic around race. One of the things that I, I really like about how you talk about this is that you separate income and, and a kind of status, right? Mm -hmm. um, that they're connected, they're correlated, but they're mm -hmm. not identical when you talk mm -hmm. about how the status of journalism has changed alongside the fact that, um, you know, it's, it's become more credentialed. So yes. I guess um, maybe can you talk a little bit more about those two factors? Like what, how would you separate status versus pure income um, and, and second, what is the role of credentialism of university degrees becoming necessary for not just journalism, but for many fields? I mean, so, so what has the role of credentialism been in terms of shifting the composition and the status of journalism as a profession? Well, essentially, I mean, it's like this in every profession. The point is to uh, deplatform the working class, right? The point is to essentially say that whatever exists in the vast middle of America, whatever we used to think of as the backbone of the Democratic Party, the backbone of this country, people who don't get that elite education, right? Like it's to say your views are no longer acceptable or no longer valuable, you know? Um, that, that, that's essentially the effect that it's had, right? You have to have gotten this, you know, and I'm sorry, it is a ridiculous thing to have. Like it's, I, I, I have a PhD, so I can say this with a lot of confidence. Like, you're not learning anything of value at a liberal arts college. Like that degree is not actually making you better at being a journalist. It's not making you better at questioning your biases. It's not making you better at respecting people and representing their views. It's just not. And But we have somehow elevated this to being the, the gatekeeping mechanism for who gets to tell the great American story. And what's essentially happened is, is yeah, you're right. There, there, it, it's not one-to-one -one correlation. You can have status revolution that doesn't necessarily correlate into dollars and cents. And for a long time, that was true. So, you know, up until 20 years ago, I would say 15 years ago, that was true for a lot of journalists. They had a sort of high status in, in the culture, right, as cultural arbiters, but they weren't necessarily more affluent. But that's changed. I mean, today, you look at the economy today, it is working really, really well for people in knowledge industry jobs. And it is working really badly for the downwardly mobile in, in the middle class and in the working class. And you can really see this in issues like how inflation is covered, for example, right? I mean, the journalists covering inflation, they do not notice the difference between the cost of milk before and after the cost at, at the gas pump. Like that's just not, they're not living lives by and large. Obviously there's exceptions, right? There are for, for sure exceptions, but by and large, American journalists mid, you know, mid career to late career, they're, they're not going to know the difference if milk costs three sixty five or $7 for a gallon. Like they're just, that's not the, and they don't know anybody who will feel it. Right. And, and, so, and there's just been it's just the stat, the, the income um, inequality caught up for that status shift to where journalists now make, you know, by and large, more than the average American. They're in the top 10 percent. Now, it's true that that oh, entry level jobs are pay very poorly. You know, entry level job for journalism is thirty five thousand dollars a year. And you have to live in New York City. Essentially, you have to live in the 75, 75 percent of journalism jobs are on the coasts in the most expensive American cities. So you have to be able to live in a very expensive city on a very, very terrible starting salary. That's a sign of egalitarianism. That's a sign of exclusion, right? Who can afford to live in New York City on $35,000 a year? Only the children of the rich. And it's, I'm not just saying this impressionistically. Like, the data totally backs this up. The New York Times will only take interns from the top 1% of universities at this point. Same with the Washington Post. Same with NPR. You know, so even their diversification efforts that are very important because newsrooms are very white, like, their diversification efforts are always... To, to the top tier of people from different backgrounds, you know? So, how, you know, it's not real diversity, right? It's definitely not intellectual diversity, right? Ideological diversity, everybody's liberal, everybody's far left. Um, so I think you're, you're absolutely right that it started as a status revolution, but I think at this point, like it's, it's financially, it's caught up and you see this in like the issues that they pick up, that they take up, like um, issues like immigration, for example, is like a really good um, example of this. So immigration, mass immigration has been a net benefit for the GDP of America, but it is 
very, very concentrated in who gets the benefits of that. And it's liberal elites, right? It's people who need domestic labor in their homes. It's people who want to buy a $15 bottle of wine and they want it to be a really good bottle of wine. It's people who want to go out to eat in a restaurant and not pay $500, right? These are the people who are benefiting overall from mass immigration and who's paying the price. I mean, very literally black Americans, we've seen a, a, a deep increase in black wages between 30 and 40 percent over the last 30 years that's directly correlated with immigration you know it, so it's it's the status the the hyper localization um the 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 far leftness the the that edu that elite education from the same top tier universities that are all conveying the same ideology what you what it results a monoculture in the news that only lets through certain stories and only lets them through in a certain way and is essentially totally abandoned the working class who now have to go to conservative media, which of course is not populist, of course doesn't care about their economic agenda. But what I always say is like, at least Fox News is not insulting their values while abandoning them economically in the name of representing them, which is what you have on the left, which is why it's so, so upsetting. <laughs> um, I, I really want to pull out one of the things you said. Uh, it's not just that journalism and media has become a both uh, high status and high income, at least in the mid to late career profession, it's that they don't know anyone else um, who is not part of that stratosphere. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the New York Times, and I was kind of shocked that they they published this, but uh, um, about a week ago, um, they published a video about essentially blue cities, right? Uh, and how what is happening in blue cities, you know, is completely the opposite of the Democratic Party platform. Um, and one of the the people they call out or the places they call out um, is where I grew up in Palo Alto, California, mm. where they zone um, for single family homes, even though there is an enormous affordability crisis. And what's happening in the Bay Area um, and in many other places in California is that people who are um, not even so not just the working class, but even people who are middle class um, have to move further and further out. You're talking about, you know, in some cases, two or three hours away in order to come in to places like Palo Alto to, um, you know, to do all those things that you just said, right, to staff yeah. the restaurants, to, um, you know, run the, the shops and the stores. Um, so you're really seeing this, like, extreme polarization in where people live. And I guess that that was where I wanted to ask you. One of, it seems to me that one of the, the most important um, and undercovered aspects of how we are polarized today and how we're pulled apart from each other um, is the fact that nobody, like neighborhoods are no longer at all diverse in income, right? Um, whereas if you go back to, the 1950s or the, or before even the 40s and 30s, obviously things were segregated by race, by law in a lot of places, right? So leaving aside that very large issue within neighborhoods, you actually did have, you did have somebody who was making a lot of money living next to somebody who was, was not making nearly as much money. And so you had that kind of interaction um, and, and that kind of personal interaction that forces a certain level of respect and integration and compromise between different interests. I mean, how do you think the fact that we we literally physically don't interact with each other, and that, that maps onto a political divide too, right? We don't, there's so many of us live in bubbles where we can go, you know, we can go the proverbial um, 20, 40 years without interacting with anybody who's of a substantially different class than us or substantially different political opinion. I totally agree with you. I think that a lot of this is about income and about culture and about the way that those things sort of intersect with each other and the, the great American sorting to where liberals go to big cities where they find other liberals and live in cities with other rich liberals and leave everybody else behind. It's had a disastrous effect. Absolutely. You know, and um, <laughs> it, it definitely there's this correlation between um, income and class and 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 values, um, you know, con working class Americans irrespective of who they vote for, are much more conservative than they are liberal. And then they are then then the liberal elites who purport to speak on their behalf. You know, you take an example like the black community, right? The black community is deeply conservative. 70% of black Americans say that they are either moderate or conservative in their views, right? And, and uh, another 5% are undecided, like less than 30% call themselves liberal, 
only 6% call themselves progressive, right? It's, you know, so it's, you have a, a the, the black community is the most likely to vote for Democrats and the least likely to call themselves progressive from the democratic coalition, right? But who do you hear ta- representing this coalition? Who do you hear speaking for this side? It's progressives who then are the most white and the most highly educated, right? Which will later in their lives correlate with the most affluent. So I, I, I totally agree with you, this great source has allowed people to get drunk on their own values and virtues while penalizing the people who have less than them, while smearing the people they have less than them, but sneering at them and their values, all in the name of social justice. And the reason that they're able to do this is because they no longer go to shul or go to church with people who make less than them, which might, you know, induce some humility, but have maybe conservative values on certain issues, right? Or people who, you know, in the same income bracket, but who they're friendly with, who they might go, you know, and and share a hobby with, but who vote for the other party. We've become very, very sorted and the sorted not sorted but the effects of it are sorted I got you. <laughs> um i mean so there has been this tendency on i think a certain type of the left and not even like necessarily the woke left that you're talking about but even some of the people who object to that um and then also correspondingly on on the new right i think to look at the culture war issues as somehow a distraction or or unimportant right um and and the the quintessential uh thesis that i think of in, in this regard is is what's the matter with kansas right mm-hmm. um the 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 theory the, the thesis is basically why are these lower middle class or working class voters voting quote unquote against their economic interests um it's because they're a bunch of dumb rubes who are afraid of of uh, people who are ethnically different from them or or um, they're afraid of, of the sexual revolution or, or whatever it is. Um, and I think there's kind of a tendency to downplay those issues as somehow illegitimate, but the sorting that we were just talking about, and I think agree is really pernicious force, that started with a cultural issue, in my opinion. It started with crime, right? When it became, um, when it became dangerous to live in poor, like a mixed, poor, rich neighborhoods, that's when you start to see people picking up and leaving because people are, are not going to tolerate. Um, and if you can't afford not to tolerate being threatened on the street or not being able to send your kids, you know, outside, um, people will pick up and leave. Um, and again, I think people overestimate. It's not that, that race has nothing to do with this, uh, but I think they overestimate how much of it is race and how much of it is class. This, this like escape from the city, right? Um, and I see that as fundamentally a cultural issue that came out of the sexual revolution and, and um, you know, drugs and, um, and and a bunch of other, um, you know, sort of developments, cultural developments in the late 1960s and 70s that skyrocketed crime. Um, but like there you have an example of a cultural issue that was more immediate in a certain sense that then created down the line a massive economic inequality consequence that then had cascading consequences, right? So, um, you know, one of the things that I I found so refreshing about the way that you talk about these issues is that you don't automatically downplay um, some of the cultural concerns of people who might think that it is more important, for example, to vote for, in Virginia, vote vote for Republicans because they're, they're, um, standing up against some of the the extreme radicalism in public schools, that might be a more pressing concern to a family in a very real way than even something that is substantial, like the the pressure of, of healthcare costs um, and, and inflation of healthcare costs, right? If you're looking at these two things as a family, there seems to be this, even among people on the left that I find insightful on these questions, um, there seems to be this like reluctance to take that cultural concern seriously or treat it with any kind of of dignity which which you really do in this book thank you so much um that means a lot to me when i was writing the book um even when i was pitching it to publishers it i was calling it what's the matter with liberals because i really do see it as a response to thomas frank's work to his credit he wrote a second book called what uh listen liberal where he was like actually the liberals are giving them nothing anyway um and i think he felt bad about the success of the first book because like you said it's so insulting it's so ridiculous and you saw that exact reprisal in the coverage of glenn youngkin's win right you know um uh, th- they would say critical race theory which is not even real is 
being has just flipped the suburbs 15 points. And, you know, that was the new what's the matter with Kansas, right? That was the new why is the white working class voting against its economic interests. I want to make two points. I completely agree with you that so much of it is about class. Christopher Lash made the point that you're making that liberals sitting in their gated communities were sitting there sneering at ethnic whites who were poor, who were worried about the influx of crime into their neighborhoods and called them racists, you know, while not at ever acknowledging that it's a completely fair thing to want your child to be safe. And that that indeed was why a lot of black people wanted to move into those neighborhoods, because they too have the very real desire for their children to be safe. And I think you saw a lot of you see a lot of this with the critical race theory in schools as well. That is a class issue because liberals can afford to put their kids into private school where they can teach them whatever critical race crap they want, right? But people who are lower income, they're stuck with the public schools, right? Like they're the ones who are stuck sending their kids to a place where somebody else, the state is gonna decide what they're taught, right? So it's, again, it's a completely class issue mixed in with this cultural issue. Um, the, the idea that um, that it is pro people of color, that it is anti-racist to, to separate children into affinity groups as they're doing and put white kids in one group and children of color in another and teach the children of color that they're oppressed. Like the idea that that is a pro, you know, um, that that is an anti-racist thing to do is completely ridiculous and totally rejected by public polling in the black community as well. So it, it's, it's, again, one of these things that flatters the egos of affluent white liberals while being burden on the working class. I'll just make one more point about this. I think the real problem with um, what's the matter with Kansas was not just that it was insulting, right? That instead of recognizing that it was the Democrats that had shipped millions of working class jobs overseas to China, enriching their middle class and abandoning our working class, right? Instead of acknowledging that that was Bill Clinton who did that, right? You know, and saying, okay, well, we abandoned the working class. That's why they abandoned us, right? He argued, no, they were sort of hypnotized by conservative media, right? That you know, created this quote unquote backlash culture that, you know, th these rubes, exactly like you said, these rubes were taken in by this crap. Um, I, I, the, the truth is, is I think that what he's missing there and what a lot of the left is missing is the fact that, and I'm actually really interested to know what you think about this, because I know we're coming at the, the economic questions from a different point of view, but to me, it seems like we have a fiction of um, a debate about economics, that's not really a debate about economics insofar as you have the the right pushing this kind of trickle down economic stuff where let's cater to the rich and it will it will benefit everybody i think that that's been pretty much i think you know disproven i think that that's really bad like that leads to the basically what you see now which is you know the working class being downwardly mobile their productivity being reflected only in the billions of dollars that their bosses and that the, their CEOs are making and not in their own wages, et cetera. But then what, what passes for the liberal point of view, the lefty point of view is it, an expanded welfare state, right? We'll pay you off for the fact that you're not, you don't have a good job, right? Let's do universal basic income, for example. We're going to give you $2,000 a month because you're not going to have a job because of automation and globalization. And we want cheap wine and we want cheap iPhones from China. So we don't want you to have that job, but we'll pay you off, right? Like, you know, expanded welfare. Let's make sure that everybody can, you know, have as much unemployment as they need, right? It's th the thing is, is that too is fundamentally hostile to a working class agenda. Like the working class does not want to be living at the beneficence of, you know, generous liberals. And the reason that that appeals so much to people in Silicon Valley, for example, is because they're so rich that they really are happy to pay a much higher tax bracket. Like that will net, you could, you could make them pay what the same tax bracket that they pay in, in Denmark or in Sweden working class people will still never be able to afford to live in their neighborhoods, just like you said, right? Like there's no threat to them to pay a higher income bracket in tax bracket. They're happy to do it because they have so much money. The thing they don't want is an empowered working class that is upwardly mobile, that has, you know, the right to their vote and a lot of political power to say, actually, we don't like this thing. We want this thing. So it seems to me that what we have is like, we have this fiction of a debate about economic policy. That's like the top 10% of liberals fighting with the top 1% of, 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 of conservatives and everyone has abandoned the working class because the welfare state is fundamentally at odds with what working class Americans want. They don't want welfare. They want 
good jobs that will give them dignity, that will give them a sense of being an active participant in building up this nation. And it seems to me that both sides have taken that away from them. So when he's saying they're voting against their economic interests, they actually weren't. They were voting against an expanded welfare state that, that you know, people in the Rust Belt, that is not what they want. They want good jobs with dignity. They want to be able to support a family with one person working and one person taking care of the family. That used to be a liberal point of view. That is no longer a liberal point of view. That is on nobody's agenda. Um, I think the the core, even though we do disagree, I'm sure, on some economic policies, but I think actually the core of what you're saying, I agree with wholeheartedly, which is mm-hmm. the important word there is dignity. Um, and I, I agree specifically on, on UBI. Um, it is really popular in Silicon Valley. It is really popular. And I actually like some of what Andrew Yang says. Um, but on this, I find him to be really kind of tone deaf or, or um, not really interacting with the problem because you're right. It's, it's like we can structure the economy to only have any kind of real dignity and opportunity for a certain percentage of people mm-hmm. and the rest of you will pay off. Well, that's not, um, that's not a way to actually structure, for example, a republic, right? It, it is an oligarchy in many ways. Um, totally. And, and it, it doesn't like writing a check every month, mm-hmm. uh, the most out of touch, like ridiculous thing that I've heard about UBI. Um, I think it was Nancy Pelosi who was saying it, but that if, if we give people UBI, um, she was building on what Andrew Yang said, if we give people UBI, then people will be able to like write poetry and um, they'll be able to, to pursue their passions. Um, and the reality is more like what's happening in the Rust Belt now, um, which is deaths of despair when people totally. don't have purpose and dignity through work. Totally. They're not writing like postmodern poetry. They're taking Oxycontin. Totally. Um, and, and I, and I so, think it like, gets back to culture because they don't want to write poems. They want to go to church. They want to be able to come home with enough money that their wife can be a stay-at-home mom if she wants and that they have you know, dignity in their community. You know what I mean? A lot of this is very conservative. And that's the thing I feel like a lot of lefty, you know, populists or people I'm supposed to, I'm a left-wing populist. I'm supposed to be agreeing with them, but there's no sense of like, we need to listen to the working class where they're at. And like the point, the reason it's bad that they've been disempowered and disenfranchised and silenced and deplatformed is not because they share our values and people we agree with or we like, or who we feel sorry for are not getting their say. It's because they don't share our values. They, they're not feminists, you know? And, and, but they are a huge part of America. And instead, we're in an oligarchy, just like you say, and an oligarchy is anti-democratic. It is a threat to my security that 80% of Americans have no say, have no politicians who are catering to them except crazy Donald Trump, right? Like, that's a threat to the stability of this nation that a huge majority of Americans are so, so um, alienated by the fact that Everything is just to the elites. There's no countervailing force to the power of the elites today. And that is so dangerous. You know, um, I want to touch on something that I think maybe we we disagree on a little bit, um, but maybe not. And we'll, we'll, we'll find out. But, um, you know, it's, it's to what extent, because it seems to me there are two problems here with the, the hardening of, of elite lines in America mm-hmm. and class lines in America. One being that just as you say, the elite have too many seats at the table and there's no countervailing small D democratic force. And, and to me, that seems very much a product of um, a, a second piece of this, which is a sort of managerial revolution, right? So mm-hmm. we do most policy in this country through bureaucracies um, mm-hmm. and the courts, which are both captured by credentialism mm-hmm. and elitism. Um, and there isn't, so that's, there's a huge problem with I would say small D democracy. And I'm not always a small D Democrat in the sense that I I take seriously a lot of the concerns of the founders Mm -hmm. about unchecked mobs and mob democracy. But Mm -hmm. I think in our particular moment, what we have is too little democracy and not in, 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 and, uh, and not, you know, sort of too much democracy. I'm not worried about too much Mm -hmm. democracy at this point um, in our, our, our development as a country. Um, But I think maybe where we disagree is I've I've heard um, you mention a couple times about meritocracy and how you think that actually the meritocracy has created, to a certain extent, has created this insular elite. But it seems to me that the second problem we have, aside from the elites having too many seats at the table with no democratic check, is also the composition of that elite. 
um, and the fact that there, that we aren't truly meritocratic, that, that there isn't um, a great pathway for like a bright young kid from Appalachia who is equally, quote, meritorious um, mm. to, to the folks in Palo Alto. There's no real meritocracy um, for that kid that allows him a seat at the table as an elite. Um, it's That's such a great point. Um, I, I want to say one thing about the courts, which is, um, so f- like, for example, Roe v. Wade is way to the left of where the vast majority of Americans are on abortion, you know? Like, and there is something, so so liberals are like, well, it should be even further to the left because that's what we think. And conservatives are like, no, it should be even further to the right because that's what, what we think. But the, you know, the truth is, is like, in, in so many ways, just like you said, there's so much of our legislation is being done at the lev- at a, a level that is very separated from where Americans are at. And I'm, I'm not saying I'm against Roe. I think it's probably by and large a good thing. But to even point that out is considered like such heresy to even look at the polling on where the vast majority of Americans are on, you know, on where, you know, where the line should be between legal and illegal abortion, you know, which is a a question of democracy. Like, do the laws reflect where the people are at? And they're really not like, they really don't actually. (laughs) And there's a lot of things in the other direction as well, like our criminal justice system or, you know, healthcare, for example, there is huge consensus between, you know, 78, 80% of Americans about the need for some sort of public, you know, guaranteed healthcare, um, you know, be it a public option or just universal healthcare. And it's just impossible to imagine our politicians ever getting us there, you know? So that I think that that those are things that are really related to the credentialism, to the, to the bottleneck right at the top that gets you into these positions of power. Now to your second point. Yeah. I want the meritocracy to be working, to actually be working. I want every, you know, black and Appalachian Einstein to be able to get to Harvard. That's extremely important. Our elites are extremely white. They're extremely upper class. They're extremely self-perpetuating. That's disgusting. And that should happen. However, (laughs) my caveat to that is, is that what happens to everybody else? Like the problem with the meritocracy is that it, it is built on the idea that we should be rewarded for our intelligence and our talents. And the things that make intelligence and talent worth rewarding are their rarity, are the fact that not everybody is brilliant. Not everybody belongs in college, you know, not that many more Americans want to go to college than are in college, right? 36% of Americans get a college degree. There's probably another 10, 15%, 20%, let's say even, who don't get a college degree, who are brilliant and should get a college degree and should be on their way up that ladder and should become millionaires and billionaires. That's really important. But what happens to everybody else? And I feel like there is almost this agreement between liberals today and conservatives that, yeah, if only the meritocracy would be working perfectly and we would get all of those Einsteins out of those poor neighborhoods and up onto the Supreme Court, you know, we'd be succeeding. But how does everybody else get dignity in a world that only values brilliance and talent? Like we used to, the Democrats used to be the side that valued, that respected the kind of work that is replaceable by definition, right? That you can only get power through unions. You can only get power through numbers. That's what the word solidarity used to mean. That's why I think it's so funny when journalists unionize. <laughs> I probably should admit this, but I'm just like, that's not the point of a union. Like the point of a union is to is to build strength and numbers for people whose work is not valued for its individuality, right? Whose work accrues value through experience that they learn on the job from each other, but is essentially created by numbers, right? That's kind of the, that used to be the Democrats position and the, the wholesale shift into a meritocratic system suggests to me like a shift away from valuing the dignity of labor to only valuing the things that come out of smart people's brains. And I find that very gross. Like I, I'm very, I, it's, it's, it's not just anti-democratic, but there's something about it that offends me, like both as a religious person, like on a spiritual level, but also like my sense of justice, like why should that? Yes. Right now the free market is rewarding that kind of behavior more than other kinds of behavior. It seems to me that we should be combating that from a spiritual point of view and from a a patriotic point of view and from a democratic point of view and from the desire to live in a better America, a more equal America. You'll never get to an equal America that confers dignity and equality before the law on everybody and equal political power to everybody if we're only valuing things that by definition get their value by being unique. What do you I think? think? <laughs> that's, that's a really good point. And it's, it's something I would have to think about longer, honestly, about because it, 
the immediate counterpoint that comes up to me is, mm-hmm. is simply that um, the dignity comes at have, out of having a shot at it and, and that there is something quintessentially American about sort of taking that shot. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, and there's, a, there's plenty of, to merit that isn't just like raw IQ, right? Um, like hard work is also part of merit. Uh, and, and, and part of a functioning meritocracy, as you say, there are lots of jobs that don't require, you know, the, the top 1% brilliant, most, you know, high IQ individuals to do, um, but that there's dignity in, in hard work. And that's also part of, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, that's also part of the meritocracy. Um, but I guess what we might agree on with regard to the meritocracy we can talk about what a functioning meritocracy would look like. And I think that's a fascinating conversation. I just, I have to think more on what you've said. Um, Cause I think it's such a good point and it's worth sort of kicking around for longer than, than, you know, a minute um, on, on, on a podcast to make a response. But I, uh, I think what we can probably agree on is that we're not really in a meritocracy anymore. Yes, and and totally. you, you, you said something a little earlier about how they're perpetuating. So our elite are perpetuating, their status, right, through their children who may not have exactly, because we're not just talking about high IQ tech startup bros, right? Um, I think that's that's definitely a high performing one sector of the economy. And that is to some degree meritocratic. Like I, I, did, I grew up in Silicon Valley. You know, these people who are starting, you know, they're doing startups and stuff, they're, they are brilliant and they are right. working, you know, right. 16, 18 hours a day. Um, but it seems to me that there's an entire apparatus of uh, high status, high pay, highly paid elite jobs um, that are not based on that kind of meritocratic brilliance or, or hard work that in fact, wokeness to, to bring it back to the subject of your book within journalism, but I think it's so applicable outside of journalism, um, that wokeness is itself becoming a a way for the elite to perpetuate their place in, in a what has not become meritocracy, but um, it's a way of bringing along to, to, you know, be a little bit crude about it, but like, it's a way of bringing along their fail sons, right? Um, you you have uh, kids who may not be as brilliant as their parents, for example, or as, as um, naturally sort of meritocratically elite as their parents, um, but they can shape that resume for universities by doing woke projects every every summer. When I was um, in Palo Alto as a kid, I used to call it combing llamas in Peru because so many of my, um, my like, fellow, uh, you know, whatever, like starting in eighth grade or whatever, all these parents were sent elite parents, send their kids out on these projects, right. To, to collect social totally. justice points. Totally. Um, and it's so <sighs> condescending and it's so like in Palo Alto, so we awful. did a lot in, in EPA where like EPA, when I was growing up was no longer a murder capital of California. It was a functioning middle-class community <laughs> in many ways. And so you have these rich kids from Palo Alto going over to do their service projects, right? And so condescending, but they are not doing it out of the goodness of their hearts, right? They're doing it to build a resume for college. Um, it's even worse and- than that because it takes even the creative children, but they know that they're just doing it for the test. Like there's, you know, I mean, there was this amazing article in Tablet about this, this guy who teaches at the University of Chicago, where I actually went, where we were very much encouraged to be, you know, whatever, think whatever we wanted at the time. He said that every, he, he has never had a student who has read a book for pleasure. He's never had a student like form an opinion outside of the context of what they think the professor wants to hear. And like, on the one hand, it's like, it's so gross that parents are doing this. On the other hand, they're actually right. Like, there is no guarantee that if their child goes to a state school that they will still have, you know, an upper middle class life because the meritocratic squeeze has gotten so, so tight. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that there's a certain inevitability. People always want the best for their children. Um, but what is not forgivable to me is is the the fact that we've built a system that recognizes that kind of credentialism as opposed to any kind of real meritocracy. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And, and so like th- these folks, yeah, they don't, they don't do the startup thing um, in Silicon Valley. What they do is they work in an HR department for a fortune 500 company. They work in federal agencies, ever larger, like sort of bureaucratic compliance. Yeah. And that, that bureaucratic compliance and managerial state 
is also now becoming an ideological compliance yes, totally. machine. And you can make, you can now make money. What really worries me, because I, I think conservatives used to say like, oh, don't worry about the, you know, the gender studies programs or whatever. They're going to graduate and they're going to be baristas. Increasingly, that's not even true. Mm-hmm. You graduate from a gender studies degree and that, that wokeism, like that jargon that is the equivalent of a UK accent from like some, I don't even know where the places mm-hmm. in the UK are that are like fancy, but you know, having the exact right accent, you know, that says that you went to the exact right schools, increasingly having the right woke language and the right woke opinions is itself a, a, a class indicator that gets you a job. Um, making six figures, making very good money in some of these like compliance industries. Um, and that's not merit, right? I think maybe that's where we can, we can Mm -hmm. agree. I don't think that that's a functioning meritocracy. That's a credentialed elite perpetuating itself. Um, and, and while I understand the personal impulse to want to make sure that your kids do well, I don't think that we should be defending that system or we should be critiquing that system and trying to make it genuinely more fair. I totally agree. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, Can I ask well, you something? Sure. <laughs> okay. It's off topic though. That's, that's, um, that's fine. I have an off topic last question anyways. So. Oh, awesome. Okay. I wanted to ask you something about feminism. Um, okay. I, I actually agree with a lot of your critiques of the way in which like girl boss feminism for actually from a class point of view, erases, you know, some, the, the commonsensical in a way, which is very much associated with lower classness, right? Like with not going to that, to, to, to some elite school and coming up with some, elite view about these things. But what I wanted to ask you was like on a material level, yes, we've made women unhappy, but like domestic violence is much lower in America than it is in other countries where gender roles are still much more enforced culturally, socially, if not even, you know, in some sort of like political way. And, um, you know, we're critiquing, you know, the sort of like the, 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 the meritocratic rise of these elites, but they are sort of, um, they're not poor, right? Women can, do have opportunities to out of poverty in this system that yes, is worthy of criticism, right? But has also given them a level of independence and ability to represent themselves that you wouldn't find in cultures that are still more divided by gender. So I feel like on the one hand, I agree with so much of your criticism of like, what feminism has become. But on the other hand, I'm so curious, am I just wrong about this, that, you know, there is a correlation between being unhappy at where we've ended up, but, but also things being materially much better? I think it's kind of, uh, I think it's related to the larger phenomenon of, of sort of atomization. And and Mm -hmm. you've mentioned community and religion, right? Um, I think one of the problems with prosperity, and I think it's related within the gender context, one of the problems, and I, I don't want to go backwards with, in terms of, of like, you know, the prosperity that capitalism has brought us. Um, I certainly don't want to go back to people starting in the street, like the majority of people being, um, you know, insecure about when they're going to get their next meal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that prosperity has been an enormous blessing, but it's also come with attendant problems, which has been the atomization when, when it, when you can financially leave, because the reality is even laying aside something like domestic violence and really bad, like situations of abuse and psychological abuse or, or whatever, um, it's not always pleasant to be part of a community, right? To be part of a family. It means conflict. It means giving up um, a lot of your sort of individual uh, desires. Mm -hmm. It it is a a exercise in humility and, and, um, and, and uh, like sort of sublimating your own needs Mm -hmm. to the needs of others. And that's not always, you know, pleasant. Um, And so I I feel like just as we've seen the collapse of the family, um, you know, and, and the atomization of individuals mm-hmm. that ultimately doesn't make us happy. Right. So I can see what you're saying that there might be, if we return to a more traditional sexual polarity um, that might provide cover for certain men to take advantage of that, of, of that position, right. Um, that they have because women would be more dependent by definition um, on men financially. Uh, but I think that we now have the corresponding problem, right. Which is that, 
we have made ourselves all so independent um, mm -hmm. and not just women with regard to men, but just generally in society, we've made mm -hmm. ourselves so independent that we are lonely and miserable and atomized and we can't relate to each other. And I, I, I fundamentally like, I think just like, I think not democracy is not always the answer, perhaps, um, you know, sort of my ideas would not always be the answer. Maybe there, there, there are, um, you know, situations or, or societies in which, uh, that balance is out of whack in the opposite direction. But I look around me and I don't see a problem of, of too many, um, you know, sort of, uh, or, or not enough men being um, sent to jail for, for, you know, being abusers, but, but that um, on the opposite side, it's so pervasive how, how lonely a lot of us mm -hmm. are um, and how, how we have difficulty forming and maintaining um, relationships and, mm -hmm. and um, especially with the opposite sex and how, how little we understand each other and value what's different about mm -hmm. men and women. Um, and, and I just, I, I see more of that problem. And so I, mm -hmm. I'm advancing a set of ideas as a solution to the problems that I see as most pressing, uh, but mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that every society or at all times has had the problems we do, if that makes sense. Like I think that no, totally, context, totally. there might be a need for a different advancement of different mm -hmm. ideas and policy. Um, but this is actually kind of related to what I wanted to ask you last, which um, is, I think, very much uh, connected to this feminization kind of question of, of mm -hmm. our politics and of, of there not just being a lot more women in power, but sort of a culture that is in many ways um, kind of turns a lot of men away, especially working class men from um, a lot of these institutions. And they are sort of they're, they're therapeutic and even the language around them is sort of about <laughs> trauma and, and talking about your feelings. And like um, a lot of men find that really like alienating and don't want <laughs> don't want to um, participate in institutions that require it. I mean, even um, even in your job now, right? Most people who work in corporate America, it's it's a family. We talk about our like we talk about it with all this therapeutic language. And I think that's that's um, kind of annoying to a lot of men. Um, but one of the ways I think that it, it go crosses from annoying into like truly pernicious and start mm -hmm. where you start to have it covering up real power dynamics that are much more important um, than they're getting credit for is this victimhood posture of a lot of people who are truly in power, right? And sometimes <laughs> that comes through, um, you know, it comes to that wokeism stuff about like, if, if you happen to be, you know, black or Hispanic, but you are a senator or you are a billionaire, um, <laughs> you still get to, to kind of pose as a victim in this particular context. But like the, the poster child for this is AOC, right? Um, what do you think about how she presents her political points of view. Um, and I'm, I'm not about her policies at this particular, I'm saying like those videos that she does where she's crying or she is, um, you know, talking about her trauma, her personal sort of trauma about, and then, and then she's using it to make a political point. I feel like there's something um, so perverse about that. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you can explain to me why um, this <laughs> is actually very genuine, but to me, it comes off as very sort of perverse and, and, um, like really deeply wrong in a way for somebody who has, she's, she's a Congresswoman, right? She's literally engaged in making the highest law um, at the federal level. And she is primarily presenting herself as a powerless victim. And there's something about that that bothers me. Oh, wow. It's such a great question. Um, okay. So I'm gonna make three quick points. The first is I, I, someone like Senator Tim Scott is very interesting in this context because he's very much not, a victim. He's very uh, patriotic. He's, you know, Republican, the only black Republican senator. But he was pulled over 17 times the year he got a new car in the Capitol, a senator, you know. So to me, it's like that, like that's a moral emergency. You know, the fact that that still happens and the fact that a Republican, no, you know, that he's obviously he has no, you know, he has no incentive to be exaggerating that. And so I think there, there, there are some areas where it is justified, you know, specifically policing and black men where, you know, you can become a billionaire and you'll still get pulled over all these times. I don't think he's a billionaire, but, you know, you can ascend to the highest rank in America and still be mistreated by um, a police officer. That seems to be really, really bad. And just like an important thing to point out, I, uh, although overall, I totally agree with you. It's completely um, out of 
out of out of bounds and it's used in the weirdest ways like so i remember when um congresswoman ilhan omar tweeted something anti-semitic and i criticized her for it um and and they were like you have all the power at the time i was um <laughs> i was the opinion editor of like a really small jewish newspaper you are the powerful one and she is the powerless one and how dare you sick these hounds on her like she had this whole crew of people defending her and i was like she's one of like 430 people who decides if the us goes to war like in what universe does she have less power than some you know nobody opinion editor of like tiny Jewish publication. Like it made no sense. And of course the rationale was race, right? Like it was like because of her race and that identification of race with power is the moral panic of the moment. And I, I find it to be really pernicious. It's dehumanizing. It's ugly. It's gross. It's, and it's wrong. Like you say, like, and I think for women, especially like, it's so funny. So to me, I think before the Me Too movement, I still felt like, you know, you went into work and basically every man got to decide how much they flirt with you. And you were sort of, you know, that was just the culture, you know, even even in, you know, white collar jobs. After the Me Too movement, that's just that is just like patently false. Like right now, men very much in white collar jobs and upper class jobs are very afraid of being Me Too. They're very afraid of being accused of you know misconduct. And now really that power specifically around how they interact with women has very much moved to women. That's been my experience, it's been the experience of most women I know just in this elite, right? To act like that hasn't happened, like that, that huge shift that happened over the last six years didn't happen. It seems to me like it's very dishonest, but you clearly get power from acting like you don't have it, right? Like if you can be the victim of that scenario, that is a very powerful position because people feel really sorry for victims, you know, and it's a way of really um, sidestepping other forms of getting respect by demanding it on the grounds of having been deprived at something like this. And I agree with you, AOC is definitely the poster child of this. But with her, I just feel like it's I the reason I find her so depressing is because she obviously is genuine. She obviously truly believes it. She truly feels it. She truly physically embodies all this, you know, the idea that she is um, powerless and a woman of color and working class and all this stuff like that she is deserving of your constant pity as opposed to commanding your respect through through actions and so I I feel like that to me she is like the you know she's proof that at some level the meritocracy works like if you are really beautiful and really brilliant which she is this country will reward you very greatly. Like that's kind of like <laughs> the AOC story, right? She's sort of a Republican, um, you know, American dream story, right? Like, and um, and to act like that's not, that that she is somehow still in this embattled position, even given all the outsized criticism she gets, whether she deserves it or not. It's, it. I agree with you. There's something about it that's um, sort of like, it, it's hard to know what exactly to do with that, you know, like one doesn't want to add to the, you know, outsized attention and obsession and the, you know, the need to like, just, you know, destroy AOC or like, you know, criticize her no matter what she's doing. But at the same time, like, it seems to me like there were two options to go in terms of how we told young women to deal with the fact that men sometimes want to do things to you that you don't want. Like there was one option was to be like, as soon as that starts happening, you have to just pick up your cell phone and whack them across the head. You can do this because you have all the physical strength you need, right? Like we could, that could have been the message. And instead, somehow we gave them the message that like, you know, if you, if you don't actually even voice the fact that you don't want to be doing something, then it's rape. You know what I mean? Like we went in the opposite direction. Instead of saying you have all the power you need to, you know, nine times out of 10 on a college campus to stop something from happening, we, we, we redefined what assault meant to, to where even if you don't express that you don't want to be doing something, it's an assault. And so in a way, the messaging was disempowering rather than empowering. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think the same thing is true um, broadly with this victimhood kind of coinage of the realm. Um, and, and what does bother me in the AOC context is when exactly the kind, and I, I didn't know about your your Twitter beef with Ilhan Omar, but exactly that kind of um, 
dynamic, it, it is using the language of trauma and victimhood to prevent holding people accountable yeah, yeah. who actually have power, yeah. right? If, if you are not allowed to hold your elected officials accountable in a democracy because they are performing this kind as, as powerless victims um, and, and therefore asking, um, you know, asking their constituents to essentially defend them rather yes, than exactly. the other way around. Yes, exactly. um, I think that there's something very wrong with that dynamic and it, 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 it can't um, really be good for a democracy to yeah. uh, have this idea that we can't hold people in, in, who genuinely have power. Literally, we elect them to make decisions. And the entire point of democracy is supposed to be holding the people who make those decisions accountable to the, the broader population. Well, if they just get a, a card, like a get out of accountability card, where they just they say, OK, I'm, but I'm a victim and you can't criticize me. Um, I just think that there's something fundamentally anti-democratic about that yeah it's it's bad on every level i totally agree with you yeah well i wish we could uh keep doing this forever but i know that you're you're a busy woman um and and everybody should go out and and really um buy and read this book it is probably um the one of the most refreshing books that i've read for for such a long time because because oh of gosh. the kind of things you said today, Batya, because like I, there are parts of this where it make me reconsider some position that I have oh, held. No. Um, and I learned so much about the history of journalism in this country. And, and I think it's just really important because the story of journalism and, and the dynamics that you identify within it are so applicable um, elsewhere and, and in other parts of our society. So the book is Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. Um, thank you so much, Batya, for, for coming on High Noon. Thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to Inez.Stepman at IWF.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or IWF.org. Be brave and we'll see you next time on High Noon. <laughs>